Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Just returned from a uh, marriage conference with about 25 people from Liberty late last night. So a lot of folks are still in Virginia Beach. But it's good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, to be opening up God's word together. Um, when we first moved to the Philadelphia area 25 years, or 25, 15 years ago. I'm not that old, people. All right. Uh, I remember being really, really confused by the traffic reports. You know, you turn on um, the radio station, you turn on KYW, and you hear about traffic jams on the Schuylkill Expressway or the Vine Street Expressway or I... I-95, and I was just really confused because they used this term over and over that made no sense to me. They kept talking about gaper delays. And I was like, what's a gaper delay? You know, I, I, I was like trying to picture some kind of weird, um, you know, slang term in Philly for uh, a type of auto accident, you know? Or I thought maybe like, you know, a gaper delay was like some kind of um, road work thing. And it took me a while to realize that gaper delay is what we call down south rubbernecking. Okay, rubbernecking is much, my much favorite term for this. You know, it's when traffic slows down. It's the most infuriating kind of delay because traffic slows down just to see. You know, you're just like, people just looking. They want to see what's on the side of the road, you know. And it's, it's infuriating because if you get through something and you realize... There was nothing blocking this. You know, both lanes are open. Everybody just wants to see the bozo and the car on the side of the road. You know, it's, it's infuriating. Um, but Jesus' parables have kind of a, da- a gaper delay quality to them. In fact, you know, we've been looking at these um, parables all this fall. We've been studying, you know, Luke's gospel and all these parables by Jesus. And a parable really means something along, on the side. That's, that's what it literally means. Something on the side. And so a parable, in a lot of ways, is meant to be something on the side that causes you to slow down and look. It's a gaper delay. 
And Jesus has told this parable today. We're looking at the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus. And it, within this parable, we're going to look at three gaper delays that Jesus really puts in front of our face to look at this morning. So let's review, if you'll review this parable with me, what happens here. There are two main characters in this passage. The first is named. His name is Lazarus. And that's unique in and of itself. This is the only person in all of Jesus' parables who has a name. Everybody else is, there was a certain farmer. There was a certain rich man. There was a certain landowner. There was a certain, you know, person working in the vineyard. But this is the one one person in all of Jesus' parables who has a name. And in the ancient Near East, in the first century, names were incredibly important. Jesus uses this person's name to tell us something. Right? The name Lazarus means the one God helps. The one God helps. And yet, if you look at his life, his earthly existence, he looks like the person that God doesn't help. Right? This flies in the face of any like late night TV preachers that you've seen. Like if you send in 1995 and you just believe enough that God will bless you with lots of wealth. That you are, if, if you're rich, it's because God has blessed you and likes you. If you're poor, it's because God doesn't like you. That's the health and wealth gospel. And this does not ring true in this man's life. He's destitutely poor. Right? He's, in fact, Jesus throws in this little freebie. I love Jesus' little comments he throws in here. Even the dogs came and licked his wounds. I mean, yuck. This guy is poor. He's not, doesn't seem to be the one God helps. By contrast, you have the rich man. And, um, Jesus gives us some vivid details to define the quality of the rich man. Um, first, the rich man is defined in terms of his underwear. This is not, this doesn't show up very well in your Bible, okay? But it says that he was dressed in purple and fine clothing. The, the literal word in the, in, the, in the Greek is butts, B-U-T-Z, not the other kind, but it's describing his underwear. It was a very high-grade Egyptian cotton called butts. I'm not making this up. And... Um, so, I mean, it's meant to be funny. Like, this guy even wears Calvin Klein underwear. Is kind of the, the, that's what we're supposed to get out of this. This guy is, like, not just rich in the outward way. He's rich all the way down. You got it? Okay, you're, you're with me. Okay. So, um, the second detail that we get about is, is that this man feasted sumptuously every day. Every day was a banquet for him. Every day he's feasting on the finest foods. And, you know, by contrast... Lazarus is laying outside his front gate and would like some table scraps from the feast. Thanks very much. And it tells us a couple other things about him. You know, Lazarus is laying outside the gate. Now, you have to ask yourself. There are no details left out in this thing. Why was Lazarus outside his gate? The people of community had taken this destitute sick man and laid him outside the rich man's gate. Because this man is the only person in the community who has the resources to be able to feed Lazarus and to be able to provide the medical care that he needs. So every day Lazarus is laying out there, the community hopes maybe the rich man might be compassionate today. And we get a couple other details about this guy. Later on, we find out he knows Lazarus' name. See, when he gets to hell, he's like, Remember Lazarus? Have him come help me. 
So it's not like this guy is blissfully unaware. You know, there's a guy hanging out, starving on his front doorstep. He knows. In fact, he even knows his name. He's hardened. It tells us that the dogs in the rich man's house are well fed, but the rich man won't even share his dog food with Lazarus. You get the picture? It's a picture of, of incredible wealth and incredible, incredible poverty. And this is where the parable gets kind of wacky. Because this is one of those few moments in the Bible where Jesus actually talks in vivid detail about the afterlife. Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain and the parable doesn't stop the day these two men die. Jesus keeps talking. And he defines for us like um, what happens life after death. Pulls back the curtain. What's going on back there? Now, I tell you, I hate talking baby commercials. I really can't handle... They, they just It's not just unnerving. They kind of skeeve me out. I'm just like... Ugh, you know, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a string of these right now. It's a, it's a talking baby who's got uh, a computer or a, some kind of like smartphone and is checking on his investment portfolio, right? Have you seen this? Right. Okay. You're, you're tracking with me, right? And, you know, this bothers me for two reasons. One is, you know, I've had lots and lots of babies in our family and, you know, our babies, if they could talk at this age, they would not be checking on investments. They would say things like, Get me the heck out of this cage. I mean crib. Hey, I don't want the bald man. I want the pretty woman. Right? I want something to eat yesterday. You know, that's the kind of stuff they're saying. They're not talking about investments. Um, But, you know, I I just don't like the advertisers put stuff in the baby's mouth. So that's just me. Um, But, you know, sometimes when I preach, when I come up and stand up in front of you and I open up God's Word, sometimes I'm like... Here, I've got to explain something to you that's really hard. I've got to help interpret for you parts of the Bible that otherwise you're, you're, you know, you're, it doesn't make sense to you. But sometimes when I stand up in front of you, you know, and I open up God's word, I'm very aware that preaching is to keep us from distorting what God says and changing what God says. Because this is not a hard parable. This is a fairly obvious parable. You know, I think most of us would love to edit this parable. In fact, as I, I started doing, I studied for the sermon, I was amazed as looking at commentators how they're, they fall into two different categories, but both of them will turn God into a talking baby. Both of them want to edit what God really has to say here. So there were conservative commentators who were like, oh, this is just about spiritual reality. This parable is just about spiritual reality. It's just about heaven and hell. And they would edit the parts of this parable that have to do with money and finances. And then I also found there's a whole set of liberal commentators who would say, no, this is all about what you do with your stuff. It's not really about heaven and hell. It's not really about the spiritual side. See how we'd we'd want to turn God into a talking baby? And I want to tell you, like, this is what we've got to do with this passage this morning. We've got to say, "Let, let the man speak. Let's hear what Jesus actually has to say to us in this parable because it's about heaven and hell and it's about money and caring for the poor. Now, I know some of you are like, great, this is the week I should have slept in. I knew it. You know, we're joining together two of our most unfavorite topics in the same freaking sermon this morning. Thank you, Bradford. Yeah. Let's look at this passage. It tells us, Three gaper delays 
that we see here. Um, I would tell you from the get-go that the most important word in this passage is not heaven or hell. It's not money. There's actually a word that cuts, it's, it's almost like, like the key that opens this whole thing. The most important word in this passage comes in thinking through, why is this rich man in hell? Why is this rich man in hell? Well, look, is it is the man, rich man in hell because he was rich? No, okay, thank you. No, it's not, right? Is the rich man in hell because he was stingy? Maybe. Some of you are like, I don't know. No, it's not. The most important word in this passage is this word, comfort. Comfort. It's a word that comes out of Abraham's mouth. In this passage, when he defines, he says, look, in your life, rich man, you had lots of good things. And now you're in agony. In his life, Lazarus had lots of bad things. And now he is comforted. It doesn't, you know, what's funny about this is he doesn't say, and now he's well fed. Now he's healed. He says, now he is comforted. We need to think about this word. See, the point, what's the point? The point is not whether, you know, they are comfortable in heaven or hell. Whether they're comfortable, you know, whether they're comfortable when they were alive, it's much deeper than that. This passage hits something deeper. Where did the rich man find his comfort? Where did the poor man find his comfort? We think of those words as interchangeable. Comfort, comfort, comfortable. Those are not the same things. They're very different concepts. Let me show you this way. The, the condition of being comfortable is something that we think about a lot. We want comfortable pants, comfortable houses, comfortable cars, comfortable salaries. And it's a description of our present circumstances. It's a, you know, if I say, are you comfortable? I'm asking, are you hot or cold? Are you thirsty? You know, do you, are you hungry right now? Do you have what you need for right now? And that's what we mostly think about. Are we comfortable? But Jesus is talking about something much deeper, much more profound than this, which is not a condition, talking about your present condition. It's talking about something much deeper, your identity, your future hope. What is your comfort? See, what is your comfort is not the same thing. What is your comfort says, what do you look to? What do you look to that's not based on your circumstances, not based on your day-to-day that says, this is who I really am, this is my ultimate hope, this is where I find purpose, meaning, and identity. That's what he's saying. And it's clear in this passage with the identity that the rich man's identity, his comfort, were his comforts. His comforts was his, were his comforts. You know, his creature comforts. Um, it's a big clue in the fact that one character in this passage has a name and the other one doesn't. Is Jesus, you know, did Jesus forget that detail? Oh, by the way, the rich man's name was Bob. Just forgot to tell you that. No. Jesus is incredibly efficient in his storytelling. His parable lasts five minutes. My sermon lasts 40. You know, his, he gets the point across. But why does one man have a name? Why does one man not? Because the one man, a name, says identity. You are a person. The rich man doesn't have a name because he doesn't have an identity. His identity is his stuff. 
His identity is his, his goods and good life. You can see that because when it's gone, he turns into a beggar like that. You know, these, this naming thing is, is incredibly, you know, incredibly profound. Think about this. If, if someone remembers your name, okay, you, you meet someone, uh, you know, a month later you run into them again and they remember your name. What does it say about that person? It says that you exist in their world. You actually exist in their world. You matter to them. There's identity. There's personhood. And here's the Lazarus, the one whom God helps. The one who has some sense of identity. Who looks to, and this is not explicit in this parable, but it's explicit, it's implicit by the fact that they have names. There's one man who has an identity and one man who doesn't. See, this is what we see in the passage. The rich man found his comfort in his comforts, in his lavish meals, in his butt's underwear, his status, his wealth. See, this is the first gaper delay. Slow down, take a look. Where is your comfort? Not, are you comfortable? Do you have everything you want right now? What is your ultimate comfort? This is a question that you know, has been much more in the conscience, in the conscience of, of people in generations past than it is today. We're so much enamored with, are we comfortable? Because we can actually do stuff about that. Older generation says, what is your ultimate hope? And we read this thing from this um, catechism question earlier in the service from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll invite you to look back there if you want to in your, in your worship folder. This was written in 1560s in, you guessed it, Heidelberg, Germany. And it was written by a group of people who said, this truth about Christianity is not just some academic exercise. It's just not a way of kind of like thinking, what's your philosophy about the world? It's actually the opening question in a statement of doctrine. And it's a Q&A format. So it's, it's, the question was this. Remember, we asked this. What is your only comfort? What is your only comfort in life and death? The people gathered there in Heidelberg in 1563 wrote this, that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head or yours. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he has assured me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Comfort. Not comfortable. Where is your comfort? It's the first gaper delay of this passage. Second. You know, when the rich man dies, he he goes to hell. And Lazarus goes to heaven. And it seems like, if you're reading this parable, it seems like kind of a reversal of fortunes, right? The the description of hell for the poor man, I mean the heaven for the poor man seems like what the rich man's life was like. He's feasting. And the description of hell for the rich man seems like a reversal of his fortune, like the, what the poor man had experienced. You know, speaking of comfort, I know that talking about hell makes many of us very uncomfortable. You know, some of you may be saying, I did not know that this is one of those kind of churches. 
those kind of churches. You know, I get I go to parties or I go I meet people in uh, the neighborhood. I meet people downtown who find out I'm a pastor, and they ask me questions about our church. And they say, you know, are you? Do you you're not one of those churches that believes in hell, do you? You know, and I'm like, well, yeah, um, I am. I mean, we do believe in this. And they'll ask questions. Well, you don't, you know, you don't believe all that silly stuff in the Bible about like, you know, fires of hell. And I'll say, you know, no, I don't. You know, no, I don't think that's literally true. And then we're like, oh, okay. And I'm, uh, then I'll say, I think it actually stands for something much worse than we can describe. And you're like, say what? See, this makes us uncomfortable, right? Some of you are shifting in your seats because you're like, I don't want to hear about this. I don't want to talk about this. You know, but the point of the parable is not to teach us, hey, what does the topography of hell look like? Or to answer weird questions about, like, details about hell. It's not a... It's not a um, meant to be an encyclopedia article, Wikipedia article, on what hell is like. It's rather to deal with the question, who's there and why? Who is there and why? See, when you, when you hear this passage, it is very significant to listen closely. Listen to what the rich man does not say after he's in hell. He's talking with Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, and he's interacting with him about his present condition. And notice what he doesn't say. There are two odd things in this passage. He doesn't say, number one, what we would think. If you're in agony, he doesn't say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. What an idiot I was. Is that curious to you? There's no like sense of like, hey, I did something wrong. The second thing he does not say is, can you get me out of here? Instead, he says, can you put Lazarus down here with me? He doesn't want to get out. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus to hell with him. What an odd thing to say. You know, as uncomfortable as it is to think about hell, I have found that like the people of the past generations who have been most thoughtful about eternity have been best prepared to live in reality here. People who have thought the most about heaven and hell have actually been some of the people who are most grounded, most helpful on this side of the grave. One of those people, one of the evidences of this is uh, the writer C.S. Lewis, who's probably written more about heaven and hell than anybody else I can think of in the last century. And um, he, it's obvious that he really reflected a lot on this passage. Because he says this. He says of people in hell, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. At that, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. You see this in the rich man. Not only has he said, has he chosen the source of his comfort being his comforts, he continues to prefer it. He continues to prefer a world without God. He continues to prefer hell. You know, it's super instructive for us as we think about the character of God and the character of the afterlife. Does God, in this passage, send anyone to hell? Is he condemning him? No. 
is one writer, John Hanna, puts it. He says this way. No one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. It is not God who sends us to hell. It is we who choose it. It is, in effect, as if hell has a, a door with a lock on the inside. I'm not saying, like, you know, you can change your eternal destiny after the grave. I mean, that's clear in this passage. This man cannot change. He can't go from one place to the other. But it is to say, this man prefers to be where he is. There's something about his choice in life of what his comfort is that he continues to prefer. Hell is a freely chosen identity going on forever and ever. Lewis said this, he said, It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. See, God's judgment doesn't, therefore, isn't sending someone, isn't condemning someone. It's pronouncing what has already and always been the case. You see this in the rich man's life, right? You see this, he prefers where he is. And it's not like Jesus introduces some kind of like new evidence, gotcha moment. You know, it's not God's judgment in this man's life. It's not like, ha ha. It's actually, he's saying, this is what's true. This man, this is what he prefers. This is where his comfort is. And he continues to prefer that. You know, this also corrects our picture of God. Some people have a picture of a cruel judge who delights in this. Katya! I mean, some of you have grown up with those kind of images with God. He's sort of looking for us to mess up. He's looking to catch us. And therefore, in an ultimate way, he sort of delights in sending people to hell. But that's not what you see in this passage. It's hard for you to get this, okay? But there's incredible tenderness in what Abraham says to the rich man in verse 25. In your Bible, it says child. But it's a word of of endearment. It's a word that would be only used within a family context. It's a word that's used with great compassion. He's like, buddy. Little bro. I don't know how to translate this for us in English. You know, there's something very tender about this. He's not like, ha ha! Gotcha! My child, my son. You know, it's a term of endearment, of compassion. See, when people object to this view of a God who has judgment, where there is a hell and a heaven, I have to stop and say, time out. Let me ask you this. Is your edited version of God really preferable to this? Is your edited talking baby version of God where you want to say, hey, you know, God's not like this. God is about love. God doesn't condemn anyone. He is kind all the time. There's no judgment. And I would say, really? Do you really want that? See, when I interact with folks, I'm like, you know, what did it cost your God to love you, if that's the case? If you have a God who's like the kindly old grandfather, who's like, I don't care if you, you know, I'm kind of senile and there's no, you know, we're all just nice here. I can like a God like that. I maybe could respect a God like that. But the love of that God is never going to transform me. It's never going to change me. It costs that God nothing to love you. See, Christianity holds up a picture that is sobering and yet is transformative. 
we, we, we recite these creeds, these ancient statements of faith of the church. And one of them we, re, we say together, we say, Jesus descended into hell. It's a strange thing to say. But I would tell you it's like an uncut diamond. It's one of those things that, like, if you give yourself time to think about, it is incredibly powerful. See, my God, my Savior, Jesus, it cost him everything. See, Jesus is one who, his comfort is righteousness and holiness, his heavenly Father. You know, where does he prefer? He doesn't prefer hell, but he chose hell. He chose hell for us. It cost him what is ultimate. It cost him what is honestly beyond our ability to comprehend. Jesus descended into hell so that we might never taste it, might never know that place. You know, it means that Jesus, what does this mean for you? What this means is that Jesus descended into hell so that you could be the one who is called Lazarus, the one who God helps. You and I, by faith in him, are joined to that. You know, see, there yet remains a real hell for those who do not turn, who do not yield, who do not, in the end, say, my comfort, my only comfort in life and death is the Lord Jesus. You know, C.S. Lewis offers this to those who would say, I still can't stomach this. He says this, in the long run, the answer to all who object, object to the doctrine of hell is this. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out all their past sins at all costs? To give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty, offering every miraculous help? He did that. That's what the cross is. You're asking him to forgive him them? They cannot be forgiven. To leave them alone? I'm afraid that is exactly what he does. See, slow down. This is a gaper delay. Jesus is saying, I want you to slow down and take a long look. I want you to take a long look. This is real. So ask yourself, what is the trajectory of my life? What do I prefer? What is my comfort? See, one, one final gaper delay on this road, okay? Your money... Your, your possessions, your stuff. You know, look at the rich man's appeal once he is in hell. It's interesting what he says. He addresses Abraham, who's the patriarch of the faith, and he calls him what? What do you see? Verse 24. Father. Father Abraham. What do, he's, he's, that's, that's not just like, hey, you and me are buds. He's actually appealing to this. He's appealing to Abraham. Abraham. I am securing you because I follow the law. I'm like a, a good Jewish guy. I'm, you know, I'm, you're my father, right? And, you know, it's, he's a claiming association with him. And yet, this apparently isn't enough. You know, there's no sense in his life of any kind of change, of any centeredness except for anything around self, right? There's no sharing of his resources, what he does with his money hasn't changed in any way. He's not open-handed. He steps over the man whose name he knows as he's walking out of his house. You know, 
Think about the occasion of this parable. Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And in verse 14, right before this, we didn't read this in our passage. It says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. I don't know what they were ridiculing him about, but you can almost hear them saying this. Jesus, who do you think you are? Don't tell me. My father is Abraham. Don't tell me that how I use my money and my stuff can affect my eternal destiny. And that's actually the point of this parable. See, it's, it's almost like Christians. It, it, the closest analogy to this is modern Christians who would say, look, you know, look, I, I, I'm in church. I know the Bible. I pray regularly. You know, I'm, I know my salvation is sure in Jesus. Hallelujah. But there's... Jesus' words here are, you know what, how you use your stuff, yes, it shows what is your true comfort. It can affect your eternal destiny. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I I, I assent to all these things, but your life to be completely centered around something else, around yourself. You know, it doesn't mean, of course, I'm not saying, look, let me just be very clear. I'm not saying, look, you can use your money to buy a place in heaven. Or how you use your money, like God's either like, you used enough to be in with me or not. Right? That's called simony. That was a heresy in the Middle Ages. We're not saying that. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. A faith that, it's a faith that's demonstrated by having a different way of living with your resources, with your stuff. You know, the way you use your money shows whether your heart's been changed, whether you really have a treasure in Jesus, or whether you, you just really sort of want Jesus as an addendum to your life, but he's, you don't really want him to mess with anything on the inside. See, let me tell you this. There are two direct applications I want to, to give you to this sermon this morning. First is this, your resources. Have you ever heard the phrase, spending money like there's no tomorrow? It's one of those phrases that means to go blow a bunch, of, a bunch of money, blow a whole bunch of cash, go through it really fast. And yet, in light of this parable, this should change the way we think about our money. We, we need to kind of redeem this phrase. Spending money like there's no tomorrow, that's actually a pretty good view of what it means to be a Christian. To say, I have a future hope. I have a comfort that's not my comforts. I have a future direction. There is a heaven and a hell. And therefore, I'm going to spend money like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to be open-handed with my resources. I'm going to give away stuff. I'm going to live life with incredible generosity. See, every person, every person invests according to their values. Every person here spends according to their values. No one really acts... I'm sorry, but you can tell your moms that I said this. No one really acts like money grows on trees. Right? No one ever really acts like they have money to burn. They just have money to burn for the things they value. We all do that. Everybody absolutely lives according to their values with their money, with their stuff. You absolutely give most freely to what you most value. And it tells you, What is your only comfort in life and death? Is it being comfortable? Is it butts underwear? Do you hear the severity of this? This is sobering. 
Another way to think about this parable, second application is this. Who has God laid at your gate? Who has God laid at your gate? You know, the rich man knew Lazarus was out there and he knew him by his name. He knew him by his name. Who are you stepping over who is in need? Who are you stepping past? Who is your Lazarus? What are you going to do? I, listen, I, you can give me all the, all the arguments, you know, about the system, don't want to upset the system, don't want to like, you know, I know that there's like, you know, there, there are good resources out there for people, but this is an incredibly personal story. What about you? Who is at your gate? Your stewardship of your money, your time, your gifts, your resources is the single greatest barometer in your life of your true source of comfort. Look, these parables are hard. Last week's was hard. Next one's coming up is hard. These are hard things for us to hear. And I do want you to freak out. I do want you to be cautious. I do want you to be wary. This past week, last, last weekend, um, my wife was going down to a retreat, and one of her friends was driving down there. And she was driving down the interstate in North Georgia, and as she was driving in her car, she's pulling up, she's going 70, 75, going behind this truck, and a brick falls off the truck in front of her and smashes into her windshield. And it hits the windshield right where the roof is. And if it had been even a quarter of an inch lower, it would have been through her head. You know, she somehow shattered the windshield, but it went off the top, ricocheted off the top. And she pulls over to the side of the road, and of course, she is like screaming. And if you've ever had one of those near-miss moments, you know, you've almost been hit by a car. You've almost fallen off a roof. You've almost been bitten by a snake. You've almost, you know, like you can go through these things, right? You've had one of those almost moments. What happens? Your adrenaline races. You're like... You feel, if you were sleepy before, you were not sleepy anymore. There's a level of clarity to your thinking. You're like, this, it was a narrow miss. I'm lucky to be here. And it gives you a sense of focus. It gives you a sense of like, life and death is like that. Eternity is like that. It really wakes you up. See, this entire entire parable is a gaper delay for us. And it's meant to slow us down and say, look, I see the wreck on the highway on the side of the road that was the rich man's life. I see the wreck. I see the mess that he made. And it says, what about you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.